It's Been a Minute is a culture show you don't want to miss. Every week, we help you see the culture angle behind the headlines, the forces behind the trends, and the thinkers behind the next big thing. Tune in for the sharp cultural analysis and captivating interviews. Listen now to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. When the first images of the James Webb Space Telescope were revealed just last year, they seemed to inspire a collective moment of awe. What looked like a beautiful picture of brown and red mountains bathed in glittering starlight was really an image of star birth with details that had never been seen before. And the work to make these images possible started decades ago. In 1987, astrophysicist Garth Illingworth was working hard on the Hubble Space Telescope. He was deputy director of NASA's Space Telescope Science Institute then. And it was during that time that I was told by the director that a group of us would really need to start working on the next big project. So even before Hubble was launched. Starting the next big project when Hubble was still in development seemed impossible, and Garth tried to push back. And so at that point, I told him that, well, (laughs) we have a lot to do on Hubble. (laughs) We don't have time to do this. But, you know, being the director, (laughs) he would have said, no, no, you guys really need to work on this. It takes a long time. And of course, he was right. So Garth and a whole team of scientists and engineers began to brainstorm. We were trying to conceptualize what should come after Hubble before we even knew what Hubble was going to be like. And so we had to be ambitious, but also I would say, you know, you have to balance it against something that's possible too. Whatever they came up with was supposed to go further, detect things that were too far away or too faint for Hubble. After a few years, they decided that this next telescope would have to be able to view the universe in infrared light, which is invisible to the human eye. If accomplished, it would send back better images than Hubble and open up new areas for observation. Star-forming regions, Carina, Uh, tarantula nebula, they are full of dust. And so the dust obscures things. And so when you go into the infrared, you can see further into things through the dust. The dust is less opaque when you're in the infrared. But none of this was a reality yet. Here's French engineer and astronomer Pierre Belly, who worked with Garth. The fun part is designing on paper, doing some calculation, the back of the envelope almost. So that's the fun part, at least for me. But then you have to make it work. Making it work meant figuring out problems like... To observe the infrared, you have to have a telescope which is cold. Extremely cold, because it's supposed to detect infrared light emitted from distant stars and galaxies, but... Anything that's warm gives off infrared light and could potentially interfere with the telescope's measurements, like the moon or... The sun is there, and if you let the sun shine on this open telescope, it's going to be difficult to make it cold. So we have a a sun shield, very big sun shield. It's about as big as a tennis court. 
In the end, it took more than 30 years to perfectly assemble the telescope. Original team members like Garth and Pierre had retired by the time it was finished, but they attended the launch at NASA, and they were there when the first images taken by the telescope were released. You see finally the result of your work, and that result is so amazing. Garth felt the same way. He's gotten back in touch with some of his old colleagues. To actually see all this early work come together. You know, we're all just amazed at how amazingly good it is. After having spent years and years in the realm of theory, of calculations, drawings, and experiments, the James Webb Space Telescope had become an actual real thing. And now its images are making things visible that we could only dream of or wonder about before. For physicist Susie Sheehy, that jump from theory to practice is the most riveting aspect of her work. Most of the stuff we talk about now, especially in physics, you can't see it, right? You can't touch it, you can't sense that it's there. So there is something a little bit magical and powerful and empowering about the idea of being able to, with your own hands, construct an apparatus that can either create or control or detect that which most people can't see and would never interact with. It's really, it's a lovely feeling. But getting there is often not pretty and laden with surprising challenges. On today's episode, we'll hear about some famous physics experiments that charted new territories. We'll talk to a cartoonist who does physics only for fun. And we'll meet an aspiring astrophysicist who wants to make the field more approachable. Let's start with Susie Sheehy. She is an accelerator physicist, and she's written a book called The Matter of Everything, How Curiosity, Physics, and Improbable Experiments Changed the World. So I'm an experimental physicist myself. So I guess I'd seen in my experience how important it is to get into the nitty gritty and sort of get in there and really test nature to understand new things about it, because mathematics, you know, can only go so far. At some point, you have to get in there and actually test things in the real world. And I felt there was just a lack of stories about the ways that we do that. And a lot of the experiments in your book happened during a time when the methods that were available, the materials, the technology, it was all a lot more basic than what we're dealing with now. Yeah, certainly where the story starts around the 1900s. Yeah, they really had very basic equipment. I mean, there's stories of people using tin cans and, you know, sealing wax and string. And there's one story from the UK of someone being told to go out into the courtyard and chop out a piece of a bicycle to use as a metal, metal pipe. So yeah, I guess back in those days, you could construct a piece of apparatus from pretty simple objects because it didn't have to be as precise as it has to be nowadays. It almost felt like there were these big ideas that were out there that could be understood and experimented with if you were just a bit clever, right? If, if you could blow the right glass shape and add electrodes and do the right experiments, you could discover something new. Experiments often start with an observation, like this one. 
in the early 1900s, researchers found um, using very simple instruments, they were finding that there was sort of more radiation out there than they expected. They could measure this radiation all around them, but where was it coming from? They took their instruments to all kinds of different places. And finally, a scientist named Victor Hess took measurements while in a hot air balloon. Turns out the radiation increased the higher up the balloon went. And so he determined that there are actually radiation, there's high energy charged particles raining down on us from space all the time in the form of cosmic rays. Cosmic rays are charged particles from space constantly hitting the Earth. But scientists couldn't see this radiation and had no way to make it visible. Then a meteorologist invented an instrument called a cloud chamber that has a delicate glass container wrapped in metal. The intent was to study the impact of light on clouds. But what he found, almost by accident, was that if charged particles traveled through this device... You could actually see these tiny little white streaks left behind by these particles. And the particles travel through in like one hundred thousandth of a second, right? They travel through super quickly, but you can photograph it. And doing that, you can visualize and sort of see the passage of radiation for the first time. It meant that now scientists could take these instruments to high up places like mountain peaks and get a better sense of what cosmic rays were actually made of and photograph these particles. But it all turned out to be challenging. And these cloud chambers, they were made of glass, right? Originally, yeah, yep. And then how did they get them up to mountains and to all these places? <laughs> I mean, I'm just thinking about the logistics involved here. Yeah, so it was pretty it was pretty difficult. So first you had to like hand blow the glass for this instrument and later I think they would put a glass sheet on top of like a metal chamber, which was a little bit easier. And then they would wrap that in this huge coils, uh, electromagnetic coils, because what you wanted was to sit the whole thing within a magnetic field. And then the magnetic field would bend the particles and that gave you more information about the charge and the energy and things like that. So then you've got this huge electromagnet that has to be powered by a generator. And you've got this this little sensitive chamber and you've got you know, photographic equipment. And these researchers led by Carl uh, Anderson in, in California actually put all of this on the back of like an old pickup truck and tried to take it all the way up Pikes Peak, I think it's called, quite a high mountain to try and really get up into the atmosphere. And this was during the Great Depression. So first of all, they were doing everything on a shoestring. And so their truck broke down like halfway up and they had to get towed to the top. You know, it was such a challenge. And then they spent six weeks up there in freezing conditions taking these photographs. Honestly, it was a pretty adventurous time to be a physicist. You kind of almost had to be a mountaineer as well as um, as well as a physicist. The cloud chamber experiments led to the discovery of new particles that nobody knew existed before. So I think really up until this point, we'd always viewed kind of what was in front of us in terms of matter as all there was. So if I think about just the table in front of me, even from ancient Greek times, the idea was that if I chopped up that table into tiny, tiny pieces again and again and again, eventually I'd get down to the smallest particles in nature, which were supposed to be atoms. And that idea really focused on the matter and even sort of light and things that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis. And when we looked out into space, we would see stars and planets and galaxies and things. But we quite rightly sort of assumed, okay, and those are all made of the same stuff that we're made of. 
that assumption was all in question now, and new particles kept being discovered. This was so far beyond even the imagination of the theoretical physicists at the time that it it really shook our understanding of our sort of biased view, as it were, of the matter that we interact with being the only matter that existed, and and it completely overturned that idea. And it's just so, you know, it's kind of mind-blowing to think about how you're trying to make the unseen seen. You're trying to prove things in a physical way that you can barely even imagine, you know? Right. It's just it's just all like it just seemed at this time especially this whole concept was was emerging and here they were trying to somehow have a manifestation of it in the physical world and measure it and quantify it and show it. Right. And what's interesting when you say that is I hear in your voice, like there's almost like a mystical angle to it. And um, I want to speak to that for a second, because one of the things that surprised me as a modern researcher is that when I dug into some of the early stories, and now here I'm really talking about the, the end of the 19th century, so like 1897, roughly, and I read the memoirs and the the autobiographies of some of the scientists working at that time, I found that some of these researchers used to go to seances, for example, in the Victorian era, and they tried to determine whether or not seances were real. And that to them seemed a reasonable research topic because it seemed that, okay, here's something spooky happening, there's a physical effect happening, yeah, and the perception was that it was controlled by somebody's mind, and they thought, well, okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say that that's off limits compared to what we've been talking about, which is the fact that there's all this invisible stuff that nobody can see, and that that's having an effect in our world, or that that somehow is involved in in the physical. Uh, nature of reality. So I found that really interesting. Yeah, and it seems to to me it it makes sense that you would have to keep a completely open mind if you are shaking up so many things. It brought home this point that curiosity and asking questions and asking good questions, so being open to the idea that you might be wrong and asking your questions in such a way uh, and doing experiments in such a way that you're sort of open to what the result is and you're trying really hard not to bias yourself toward the way that you think the world works, that that is such an important skill and such an important thing that that people have had to cultivate, that ability to try and unbias ourselves from, from the way we hope the universe might work. Susie Shee is a physicist at the University of Melbourne. Her new book is The Matter of Everything, How Curiosity, Physics and Improbable Experiments Changed the World. You're listening to The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. Getting from the idea stage, from calculations and theories to practice, is challenging. Like you have to will something into existence that you're not even sure is there. Here's something that has eluded scientists for more than half a century. Nuclear fusion. Harnessing the energy that is released when particles are fused together, as opposed to being split apart like in nuclear power plants. The dream with nuclear fusion is near limitless energy. A power source like the sun, but down here on Earth. The Princeton Plasma Physics Lab in New Jersey has been working on this since the 1950s. Their current machine costs $200 million. When the experiment is running, just for a couple of seconds, it requires enough electricity to power thousands of American homes. Alan Yu takes us inside of this lab. 
It's one thing to design a fusion experiment in theory with calculations and computer models, but it's another thing to put this into practice. It's very easy to design something that nobody on Earth can build. Stefan Gerhardt is one of the physicists directing this project at the Princeton Plasma Physics Lab. And so all of these fancy ideas about physics and design engineering have to be constrained by what can be done with finite money and time by real people with real machine tools. There is constant tension in my business in evaluating that interplay. That's both what makes it interesting and what makes it hard. What they're trying to accomplish here is a feat of engineering. Everything has to be exact, precise, with a lot of money and energy on the line. To picture this $200 million fusion experiment, think of a 15-foot-tall apple made of metal. When the machine is turned on, the core of the apple holds a gas that is so hot, it matches the temperature at the center of the sun, millions of degrees Celsius. That turns the gas into a different state of matter altogether, called plasma. To make and control a device like this, that pushes the boundaries for what is possible on Earth, scientists can order parts from companies across the country and the world. But some of the parts are made right here in-house, by a guy like this. I have no idea what it is. (laughs) They just give me a print and say, Joe, make this. Joe Diamond is a senior machinist at the Princeton Plasma Physics Lab. He's been here for about five years. He is 70 years old, and he's been in the machining business for more than 50 years. One of his early jobs was at a company in Philadelphia that made parts for cars and trains. And I worked at a place called U.S. Pipe and Foundry, where they made sewer pipe. I didn't make the pipe. I made the parts that made the pipe. I worked at a place uh, we used to make parts for uh, nuclear submarines. That experience all comes into play here at the lab. Joe shows me something that he says is among the hardest things he's had to make. These are stainless steel plates, about 10 inches long, less than half an inch thick, in the shape of a trapezium, that's a trapezoid for you Americans. To my untrained eye, it looks like you could just cut these out of a template. But Joe shows me what I cannot see. Like, that's flat. And this side is flat. Mm -hmm. But in relationship to one another, you can see how it's got taper on it. Oh, so it's not the same thickness all the way through. No, 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 no. To make this gently sloping piece of metal, Joe and his team had to design a stencil and cut out a piece of stainless steel to the right shape. Then he had to shave the metal down, but only from one end, so that it slopes at the exact angle the scientists want it to be. So why is this angle so important? These steel plates go somewhere between the core of the apple and the outer shell. This core, the part that faces the ultra-hot plasma, is lined with flat carbon tiles. And the idea is that those tiles can take the heat and carry it safely outside. But the problem is, the lab cannot make a metal apple such that those flat tiles perfectly cover the surface of the apple core. The carbon tiles have to be aligned and angled just right. They cannot be off by more than one hundredth of an inch. 
Because if that happens, the tiles could get too hot. Part of it could fall into the plasma, and the experiment won't get as hot as the scientists need it to be. Joe has to make these steel plates angled just right to go between the carbon tiles and the core of the metal apple, so the tiles are perfectly aligned. He shows me a pile of maybe ten of these that he made. And how long did these take to make, Joe? Oh, close to a year. How did you feel now that they're done? Well, actually, they're really not finished because there's a couple revisions, and they're redesigning them. So, we'll probably get them again. The potential consequences for getting something wrong can be serious. Back in 2016, the lab had just finished a four-year upgrade program, but then one of the magnets used to help hold the ultra-hot plasma failed. The machine was shut down for months. The lab director at the time resigned after an eight-year-long career. One story called it a body blow to the lab. Stefan Gerhardt was around back then too. He says that they worked to make sure a mistake like that does not happen again, and they increased their already high standards for parts. For instance, he says that when the lab asked companies to make them more of these magnets, the lab did something they had never done to prototype magnets before. And we tested them and we cut them up to look to make sure there was no embedded flaws. The lab asked the companies making the magnets to make sure that they had a clean room, free of dust or other metalwork going on that could contaminate the magnets. You want to make sure that all the workers, if they're touching this, have gloves on so the oils of their hands don't get in. You want to make sure that nobody comes in here and marks with a pencil or a sharpie. A company in France made some of the magnets. To make sure the company followed the lab's specifications, the Princeton lab actually sent people to France in 2020 to watch the magnets being made. Then, of course, the pandemic happened, and the lab had to scramble to get those people back to the U.S. The lab is still getting new parts and putting them into what they have already built to make sure everything fits. These are complex, complex assemblies. It's a Very large Swiss watch. We sometimes like to tell each other, and it does require people who know how to coordinate this finely tuned Swiss watch with hundreds of machinists and engineers and scientists all working on this one thing. Stefan says one of the project managers on the team used to run a nuclear power plant. There's radiation hazards. There's electrical hazards. All the more mundane mechanical hazards. There's a lot of technical complexity. There's many systems that have to work simultaneously, and so in all of these these areas, once it's built, a lot of focus goes into carrying quality and safety into operations and making sure these complex systems work together every day when the science users are present and wanting to get some science done. Right now, the goal is to have the machine ready to be turned on a few years from now. Scientists can then use it to do experiments and figure out how to control and work with the ultra-hot plasma to someday maybe use it to generate huge amounts of power. In the meantime, they are designing, assembling, and fine-tuning all the components one plate at a time. That story was reported by Alan Yu.
This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. Physics digs into things we all know and interact with. Energy, force, light, sound. But it can seem so theoretical and removed from our day-to-day lives. When Randall Monroe was studying physics in college, he often felt very confused. You get shown a problem and you're supposed to know which formula to apply, which technique to use, how to get to the answer. And if you don't, it means you've you know, messed something up. That's the feeling you get. And that's not helpful because we are confused by stuff all the time. Scientists are confused by stuff all the time. It's hard to figure out how the world works. Randall is a former NASA roboticist, but these days he's better known as a cartoonist and author of the webcomic XKCD. He explores whimsical scenarios and hypothetical questions like... Someone once asked about dropping a steak from outer space and if (laughs) if you could cook it by the heat as it entered the atmosphere. He employs all those years of physics and math to try to solve these absurd problems. And I would think, okay... I'm pretty sure there's no research on stakes at hypersonic speed, but I know there are papers on like when satellites break up, they release all kinds of weird shaped debris. So I need to go find one of those models for how the debris falls and see how to best apply that to a stake. Like what's the most stake-like piece of debris that they modeled? And go from there. Randall says he enjoys these absurd questions because when you're trying to answer them, it's okay to be confused. And so I like these questions that are, you know, completely off the wall, even if they, in the sense that they're asked, are ridiculous, they don't have any application to anything, they're not about something someone's really going to try. It sort of lets you approach a question admitting, I've never studied this before, I've never tried to figure this out before, because probably no one has tried to figure it out before. And so it's okay to show how you go about the process of figuring out what equations apply. How do you get closer to the answer? How do you get to an answer from what you already know? which is a fun process. In his latest book, What If 2, Randall tackles questions from fans and readers that challenge both his imagination and his math skills. Questions like, would there be any danger from standing next to a large object that was zero Kelvin? By the way, zero Kelvin is minus 460 degrees Fahrenheit. So you came up with this scenario where somebody has an ultra-cold cube of iron in their living room. And then what did you do from there? That was a sort of surprising question because, like, when I first read the question, I thought, okay, well, I mean, something horrible would happen to you immediately. Because, like, if you stood next to an object that is as hot as it could possibly be, where the temperature is turned up really, really, really high, way beyond normal, you know, anything you'd encounter in real life— Bad stuff happens to you really fast. You know, it releases all kinds of thermal radiation. You, you could get vaporized. It would be an absolutely catastrophic situation. And so, like, my instinct was if you had something large, massive, and as cold as it can possibly be next to you, something bad would happen. But then I thought about it for a minute, and I was like, I'm not sure what would. The more I, you know, did these calculations, like, hot things emit hot radiation, but cold things don't emit cold radiation. They do sort of absorb radiation from you and don't return it back the way your normal environment does. Um, So if you stood next to it, you would get colder, but like you could put on a jacket. And that was a kind of surprising case of the answer being 
like less dramatic than I expected. Because usually when you take one of the sliders of reality, like the settings of the universe, and you slide it all the way to the, the maximum or minimum position, something weird happens. But Randall did find some surprising risks he had to take into account with this cold cube. One problem is that when you have something that is near absolute zero, the oxygen and also the nitrogen in the air can condense onto the surface like dew because it's below the boiling point of oxygen and nitrogen. And so these chemicals in the air, the oxygen in the air can form in these beads on the surface. And liquid oxygen is incredibly flammable. And so in cryogenic facilities where they have stuff that's operating at below the temperature of liquid oxygen, they actually have to worry about liquid oxygen buildup causing fires. If you make something cold enough under some circumstances, it can spontaneously catch fire. And the idea that something ultra cold would be a fire hazard was a total surprise to me. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And so if you were to put this ultra cold cube on the floor, I guess immediately, as long as you don't touch it, you would be okay otherwise, though. Yeah, you definitely shouldn't touch it. I mean, like we've all, you know, there's the stories about if you lick a a pole when it's cold out, out on the playground, you can get your tongue frozen to it. Um, And it would be much worse if you touched a metal object with a lot of thermal conductivity that was, you know, zero Kelvin or near zero Kelvin, you would very quickly get frostbite, but like worse, you know, immediately uh, burn the tissue um, with the cold burns. But if you're standing a little distance away from it, the room would slowly get colder, but the walls would keep radiating heat, depending on how well insulated your house was, it might get cold enough that you would really uh, need a heavy jacket. But the the cube would also start warming up. Yeah, I was wondering over time, like, who would win the cube or the house? You know, like, yeah, <laughs> if this thing is allowed to sit there, does the cube warm up or does the house just get unbearably cold? At first, the house, the house gets colder, mm-hmm. but the cube warms up and the house will win eventually. Because The cube doesn't have anything continually pushing the temperature down. Ah. There's nothing supplying new cold or, you know, pulling the heat out. Whereas the house, the house is surrounded by an environment, you know, that the air outside, the air moving in and out, the ground, the sun. And so the house will, you know, it would cool down depending on how good your insulation was and how much heating you had. But the heaters in the house, if you've got a lot of people in the room, they're all generating heat. It would take probably a couple of weeks to get the cube up to room temperature if you didn't really try to heat it up. Now, I don't think this is a problem that anyone is going to run into, but it was still kind of fun to do the calculations, try to figure out how quickly could I deal with this cold cube problem once it was created. Now, another question that drew my eye was about the universe. And the question goes, if the universe stopped expanding right now, how long would it take for a human to drive a car all the way to the edge of the universe? So there's a lot of hypotheticals here. You know, you can't build a road out to the edge of the universe. If you try to drive on it, what would hold your car down? Um, All these, these sort of simple questions that are why this scenario couldn't happen. But it's also fun to think about because it's sort of hard to grasp the scale of things in space. It's like I can't fit in my head how far away the nearest stars are. Mm -mm. And then it's thousands and millions of times farther to get to the edge of the universe. And so it's, it's interesting to try to like 
think about these practical questions. Like if there was a road, how long would it take to drive down it? Mm -hmm. And one thing that I realized right away was, well, even if your car lasts forever, how far could you drive a car before you would have a better than 50% chance of having gotten in an accident? And so, like, I looked up accident rates for, like, truckers and highway driving and figure out, you know, of the, the people with, who are the best at long-distance driving on a straight highway, how far can they drive before they're expected to have a crash? And I work out that you probably wouldn't be able to make it past about Jupiter uh, without running into a crash. You wouldn't even get out of the solar system. Randall figured out a few other important details. How much would you need to bring in terms of snacks? How much fuel would you need? You know, I figured out you need this, like, moon-sized ball of fuel and a pile of snacks that would uh, probably, like, cover most of a country. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, if you're driving through the edge of the universe, as far as we can tell, the edge of the observable universe is sort of the same distance away in every direction. So I, I figured out what would be a good direction to drive that would, like, take you past an interesting planet. There are stars that might have interesting planets. I found one that was, that was a neat star, Kepler-1606, uh, I think, that is a couple thousand light years away. So it would take you 30 billion years to make it there. We think it has a planet right now. By the time you get there, it may or may not have expanded and devoured its planet. Um, but you know, you can see what happened there, find out the answers. And then I figured out if you wanted to drive all the way to the edge of the universe though, you, it takes such a, an enormous amount of time. And so I was thinking, how much time would that be? And I figured out like, okay, well, what if I, there's a lot of podcasts, there's a lot of audio books, there's a lot of stuff out there. What if I wanted to listen to all of it? And I found <laughs> that like every audiobook and every podcast ever recorded wouldn't even get you to the edge of the solar system. So I tried to figure out if you know, like 150 people, there's a, a famous number that says the average person has about 150 social relationships in their life mm -hmm. uh, from Robin Dunbar. So the total number of humans who have ever lived is somewhere above 100 billion. So you could listen to a biography of every human who ever lived that was in real time. So it's like if they lived 80 years, the biography is an audiobook that's 80 years long, every minute of their lives. You could listen to that narrated by each of the 150 people who they knew best in the world. You know, like the person who worked at the store down the street from them or, you know, their childhood best friend. Listen to it a hundred each person's life a hundred and fifty times, and by the time you had listened through all of humanity's complete one hundred and fifty part biography, you would be less than one percent of the way to the edge of the universe. So you could go and listen to the entire thing another hundred times before you finally got there, and that was the first time I really felt like I got a sense in my head of like, that's a lot of time. <laughs> You have a section in the book called short answers, which are just these kind of like fun and quick calculations. And one of them is about Mario Brothers and their calorie intake, which I like. Yeah. Someone asked, how many calories does uh, Mario eat in a day? And it occurred to me, you do see Mario consume food because he runs around and collects mushrooms that make him grow. And so I said, okay, well, when Super Mario Brothers was first released, Mario can run around and collect mushrooms. And I counted up the number of mushrooms in the original Super Mario Brothers and figured out there are 56 mushrooms. And then I looked up the, the calories in a medium mushroom and figured out each one is only a few calories for the sort of standard 
culinary mushroom that I found, the most uh, typical kind. And so he only has like a little less than 300 calories in the whole game for him to consume. And the game was released in September 1985. The next Mario game that had mushrooms in it didn't come out until June 1986, which is a little under 300 days, which means he had barely one calorie per day to survive on. And so my conclusion is that I think Mario starved to death sometime in late 1985. Oh. <laughs> but maybe there were other things that he could eat. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe he gets calories from those stars. Maybe they're really high calorie. Randall Monroe is a cartoonist and the author of the webcomic XKCD. His latest book is What If 2? Additional Serious Scientific Answers to Absurd Hypothetical Questions. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. Physics can seem really theoretical, and let's be honest, really intimidating. And even though physics touches every aspect of our lives, sometimes it's hard to understand or see that connection. Dakota Tyler wants to make physics, especially astrophysics, more approachable and get more people excited about it. And he's found ways to do that on TikTok and Instagram, where he has thousands of followers. Nicole Curry has this profile of the aspiring astrophysicist who's currently working to finish his PhD. At first, college was all about football for Dakota Tyler. He was a safety at the University of Kentucky, and he was on a full scholarship. It felt amazing to not only be playing, you know, like on TV and that sort of thing, but just the environment there and the culture there. In Lexington, Kentucky, they love UK sports. He had dreams of playing in the NFL, but his body had other plans. Dakota tore his meniscus in his knee right before his senior year. And I wasn't really able to even train at the same level anymore. Like my knee doesn't bend all the way like it's supposed to. I'm having extreme tendonitis from doing basic things like um, backpedaling or, you know, doing squats or something like that. I can't really jump because my meniscus is being degraded pretty bad. Then he tore his meniscus again. Dakota realized his dreams of playing professionally after college were over. It was a hard truth to swallow. He had to rethink what college was all about. He found solace in watching documentaries about space. He started spending hours and hours just watching astronomy films. Fiery wasteland. A molten planet hostile to life. Yet somehow. And the host he felt drawn to was the famous astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. Imagine meteors delivering Earth's oceans from outer space. Descend into a toxic underworld where bizarre creatures hold clues to how life got its start. I find him to be a captivating speaker and science communicator. It's another plus one that he's Black. It's super rare to see Black people in the field of astronomy, astrophysics, physics. Dakota is also Black, but his fascination with Neil deGrasse Tyson was not just because of his race. Like, I didn't find him particularly relatable to my upbringing, background, or anything like that. But I found... His communication style, engaging, passionate. I think he's funny, too, sometimes. 
Binge-watching astronomy films was a great escape for Dakota as he tried to envision a life without football. Dakota's major was community and leadership development, so his future looked like sitting in a cubicle, which didn't sound interesting to him, but now astrophysics did. He looked into what courses he'd have to take to get a degree in that, and he found that he'd have to start from scratch, go for a completely different bachelor's degree. But I wasn't even qualified to come in at the undergraduate level for physics because I didn't have any of the math that you need. I like stopped learning math very young in high school. I, I may have gotten a D in algebra. But Dakota was excited to take this journey. Although his friends, teammates, and people in his circle were taken aback by the news. I remember I had this coach. I told him what I was doing. And I remember when I told him and he like repeated it back to me. And the vibe that I got was kind of like, what? What are you? What are you doing? Like, I, I, I didn't really know what direction that I was going in. Like, I was lost or something like that. Dakota wasn't lost, but he was in unfamiliar territory. If he wanted to know the magic behind the stars and constellations, he had to know a lot of math. He started community college in his hometown in Indianapolis, and it was difficult in the beginning. He failed many tests, but practiced until he didn't. He completed the prerequisites to pursue a physics degree and went on to complete his undergraduate degree at the University of Cincinnati. His next stop was grad school at UCLA to go for his PhD. Dakota was curious to know what professional physicists were like. I had this vision that I was going to go into the field and like turn into one of these like intellectual giants and that I was going to be completely surrounded by people who were highly intelligent and very open-minded and had like evolved beyond racism and classism and bigotry of all forms. And I was going to be around just some highly educated, future, utopian-minded individuals. And ultimately, I found out that that is actually not true at all. They're just people who are typically really good at math and physics. Dakota also loved the math behind physics, but he wanted to make a connection to what all this math could mean, what it could lead to, how the curiosity behind physics fuels innovation, helps us understand the universe around us. He had an idea. If people could understand astrophysics better without feeling intimidated, they would be more interested in joining the field. People from all backgrounds, ages, races, and genders. He made a TikTok account under the name DT Star Kid. He started posting videos with this idea in mind. Like this video where he shares an image of Jupiter in the infrared, thanks to the James Webb Space Telescope. So the way these auroras form is that there's charged particles that come from He the points sun. to several bright spots on Jupiter's north and south poles, areas called auroras. We have some on Earth like the northern lights. And when those highly energetic particles smash into the atmosphere, you get these bright emissions, these auroras. This is one of the things I love about Jupiter. It puts on these huge light shows. There are layers in Jupiter's atmosphere where it literally rains diamonds, and that is literally true. And all the meanwhile, Jupiter protects the Earth from wild asteroids. Another fact. 
What a flex. What a flex. Dakota has expanded his science communication offline. He speaks at schools and astronomy shows, sharing his passion and his journey in hopes to get people interested in the field. Like Braylon, an 11-year-old Black boy in Southern California who has always been interested in anything related to science. One of my earliest memories from Ryan's like, Two or three, my, me, my mom, and my dad used to play this animal game where you have to match a letter to an animal. My mom and dad said, like, horse or zebra. And then when the letter S came up, I said siphonophore. And they looked at me like I was a crazy person. In case you're wondering, a siphonophore is a marine organism. Braylon and his mother, Rachel Carlat, found Dakota on TikTok began watching his videos. When Dakota posted about a planetarium show where he'd be speaking in their area, Braylon and Rachel got tickets. I knew it was something that he would be super interested in. So we do a lot of things like that. We spend a lot of times at the museums. We go whale watching. We do all of the things that pertain to science aquariums, a lot of educational things. They also got to meet Dakota at this show. I've never really even heard, let alone seen, a Black scientist. The only Black scientists I know are Dakota and Neil deGrasse Tyson, and that's pretty much it. I love doing these shows. It's great to be able to have these conversations because it's super interesting for me. But it's so much more impactful to have, like, Black kid be like, yo, like, I'm into science, which is not a cool thing to be into when you're young, according to perhaps your peers. The planetarium show was in a room where the night sky had been projected on the ceiling. Dakota gave a speech about how star constellations and communities on Earth have lots in common. This idea of emergence, where you put a bunch of stars together and then they behave as one galaxy that has different properties than like the individual stars. And this is something that, of course, we see with humans as well. You put a bunch of humans together and they behave in a very different way than they would if they were just by themselves individually. Dakota closed his speech with a sentiment about himself. He talked about his journey into astrophysics, how science wasn't seen as a cool thing in his circle of friends, how when he was growing up, there was little space for little Black boys to feel comfortable pursuing physics or anything science-related. His message was not to let anyone deter you from a subject you're passionate about, that if you think it's cool, it's cool. Braylon and his mother, Rachel, remember it well. Remember his speech, right? Share with her what you shared with me about that. Oh, so after his speech, basically just a summary of it would be like, this is who you are. Don't let anyone change that. And after that speech, I guess I felt empowered. Mm-hmm. But uh, after that speech, we returned home. And uh, next thing I know, I am on an Instagram story with Dakota. So when I saw that, I guess it was the first time I've ever really said that that made me feel special because my parents... My mom and my dad have been telling me that since I was born, but this was the first time I've ever said it. And what did you say exactly? I said that I was special. 
Dakota Tyler is on TikTok as DT Star Kid. He hopes to complete his PhD on exoplanets in the next two years. For The Pulse, I'm Nicole Curry. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our Health Equity Fellow. Alan Hinnich is our intern. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Nicole Curry is our associate producer. Lindsay Lazarski is our producer. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. The Bullseye Podcast is, according to one journalist, the, quote, kind of show people listen to in a more perfect world. So make your world more perfect. Every week, Bullseye puts the pop in culture, interviewing brilliant authors, musicians, actors, and novelists to keep you on your pop culture target. Listen to the Bullseye Podcast, only from NPR and Maximum Fun. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland Fund. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race don't start and stop with the news cycle. We know that race is always relevant, and we have new topics, new voices, and new stories for you every single week. Listen to the Code Switch podcast from NPR.